This is War Room Moments, the show that takes you around the world to share interviews with some of the most successful and most relevant people on the planet, hear their stories, and get the most important business lessons they have learned on their road to success, and get exclusive advice on how to implement their success into your life and business. War Room Moments is brought to you by the Strategic Advisor Board. Here's your host, Jason Miller. Hey, welcome to the War Room today. I got to tell you, we have a very, very special guest. And when I say special guest, he needs no entry um, whatsoever. Uh, Mr. Joe Foster, the founder of Reebok, is on with us today and is going to, I would would guess drop some pretty good bombs for some of you younger business owners out there. Some lessons learned because I bet there were more than one or two lesson learned lessons learned during uh, all those years at Reebok. But Joe, welcome to the show. It's such an honor to have you here. Thank you for the invitation, Jason. Absolutely delighted to be here and really intrigued by war room. So let's go on. (laughs) (laughs) Let's go war room on it. How about that? (laughs) Well, hey, Joe, can you give just a quick brief for those that I don't know how you couldn't know who you are, but maybe for some of the youngsters that watch the show that don't know who you are, just a quick 30 second, uh, quick 30 second spiel about who you are, and then we'll get into your story. Okay. Well, I'm uh, Joe Foster, my brother and myself, my brother was Jeff. We, in 1958, left the parental company to set up our own company, which eventually became Reebok. And the story is, why did we do that? And how did we become Reebok? And why did Reebok become number one? Mm. Can't wait to hear the whole story. (laughs) (laughs) I want to hear the story that's not on the website. That's what I want to hear. Well, hey, Joe, you know, uh, one of the things I like to to ask kicking the show off is, did you come from a family of entrepreneurs yourself? Well, yes, I would believe I I did. Okay. It had a little gap. My grandfather. Go back, 1895. That's a long time. Yeah, that's a while. He invented the spike running shoe, which was Mm. And we didn't have sneakers in those days. We just had track and field and athletics. That's that's been going on for a long time. So he invented the the spike running shoe, and that's great. But he died in 1933. I wasn't born until 1935, but I was born on his birthday. So. Mm. Shared the birthday and we shared the name. He was called Joseph, and that's why I'm called Joseph because I'm born on my grandfather's birthday. And uh, oh, he during the first part of the early part of the 20th century, he was great. He had gold medals, world records in his shoes, uh, chariots of fire, the film, the athletes who won the uh, gold medals that been immortalized in, in chariots of fire actually wore Joe Foster's spikes. So that was great, fantastic. Mm. And he had two sons, James, my brother, my, my father, sorry, and John, my uncle. Mm. And you call it a war room. That's that's what they entered into a war with each mm. other. Oh, now, grandfather built a wonderful company, supplying many of the soccer teams that you may well know in the UK, Man United, some of the big ones, Liverpool, supplied mm. the boots. But uh, they lost that business. And by the time Jeff and myself... We came into the business. Jeff came in early. He was two years older than me, and he started straight after secondary school. I did a bit of college work. So when we came into the business, uh, that was okay. We were kids. We were young. You know, we were not too interested in business. We were more interested in the girls and enjoying ourselves, <laughs> some fun, you know, as you do. And then, I mean, this is not long after World War II, so they called us up to do national service. Mm. National service just takes you away from home, gives you a change of mind. You've got to be more uh, self-sufficient. You look at things in a different way. When we came back after two years, it was very easy to recognize a failing company. Mm. As I say, my father and uncle, they didn't speak 
In fact, Jeff and myself on occasions had to drag them apart. They were fighting. What, what could we do? Well, we tried to persuade my father that, look, you know, this company is dying. And if mm -hmm. we want to continue anything, why don't we start a separate company? Uh, but father, I don't know, maybe going through two world wars and maybe fighting his brother for so many years, maybe he'd lost his spirit or yeah. if uh, to do anything. So eventually, uh, Jeff and myself, we did a bit of, went to college, learned a bit more about shoemaking. We knew what to do at Foster's. That was pretty obvious on the, on the floor there, but we needed to learn a bit more. And in 1958, we decided that was it. And we left the company to set up our own company, Mercury Sports Footwear. Mm. And uh, well, that was great. So we did that out of necessity. <laughs> we needed to, you know, earn, earn a living, earn some money. Sure. It wasn't <laughs> that we were then at that point looking for a, a world number one company. But, you know, we set about it and that was good and it took a, a good while. But uh, we worked together very well. Jeff loved the factory. He just loved making shoes. Mm. It wasn't my place, though. Mm. <laughs> the factory, that repetition of just making a shoe, no, that wasn't for me. So we came to an agreement. Uh, Jeff would look after the factory and I would do everything else. So that's how I, I became whatever, the marketing man. The, um, I did a lot of designing and selling. So I was, I was always on the road somewhere doing something, trying to build the company. And, you know, we didn't have computers. We didn't have smartphones. Mm. Uh, if we were lucky, we could place a telephone call somewhere, but telephone calls were not that good in those days. So you wrote a letter. Mm. And by the time you got a response, we're talking maybe 10 days. Yeah. So it's not the speed that we have today. So growth or scaling, as we now call it, right. scaling is difficult. But we did, we did decide that we would go direct to athletes. We, we, needed, we needed to talk to our clients, our customers, uh, because the normal way of shopping or selling in those days, you sold to a sports store, and the sports stores were sell to athletes. But uh, we're talking about track and field. We're talking about running. And in those days, running wasn't such a big thing. In those days, soccer was the big thing. But by the time Jeff and I decided to make our move, Adidas had come into the UK and they owned the soccer market. For us to get in there, we had no money. We just left the company with no money. So we had to look for what became our mantra, white space. We looked for white space. And white space for, for us was, where can we go that Adidas and, up and nobody else said, what can we do that's different? Right. And so we, we did these, but they were very small markets. So we, we dug into those markets and, and uh, really developed our company nicely. But when we got to sort of almost saturation point in athletics, it was a question of what do we do? Can we go into another category? <laughs> Soccer's a bit difficult, maybe cricket, but cricket wasn't a big game in those days. Uh, mm -hmm. So the places to go were, well, small and difficult. Or instead of expanding our product line, do we expand our territory? Do we go into beyond the UK? And uh, I was fascinated to get to America. And we had had contact with America during Foster's time. Uh, Yale University used to take 200 pairs of hand-sewn shoes from Foster's every month. And they had a little business selling to other universities and other colleges. Mm, interesting. So I, I, yeah. So I knew that. I knew that if we got there, every college, every university, they have coach. Coach is God. And you can get to a college with a, with a scholarship, a sports scholarship. So much different than the UK. And people say, why don't you go to Europe? It's, it's only 50 miles away. It's just across that little strip of water called the British Channel, the English Channel. And yeah, 27 countries, 27 languages, different cultures. That's, that's difficult. So I decided, look, guys, talking to the family, I should go to America. See if we can make a mark there. <clears throat> and... Uh, of course, the problem is we didn't have that sort of money. So it was always, no, no, you can't go. You can't. We can't afford that. Okay, mm -hmm. then what do we do? Fortunately, you know, fortune, 
Yeah, fortune is with the brave. And so we had a good fortune. The, fortune uh, fa fortune <laughs> favors the bold, right? That's right. <laughs> we, had, we, had a good, we had a stroke of luck because there was a sports magazine called Eurosport. And the British government were advertising in it. And they were advertising, we want you to export. This is a sports magazine. We want you to export, sure. and in particular to America. And they said, we will pay for a stand at the NSGA show in Chicago. We'll pay for your return airfare. And we'll pay 50% of your hotel bills and your expenses. Wow, that was it. No more arguments from the family. Joe, you can go. <laughs> You're off to America. 1968, I went for my first time to Chicago in February. You will know what Chicago's like in February. <laughs> oh, yeah. Boy, that's... Yeah. I so I grew up in Montana, so I'm very familiar yeah. with that northern <laughs> freezing cold weather. And absolutely, yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> that was that was a lesson for me in the first place. I, I'd never been so cold. Incredible. However, mm. the show was hot. The show was good. Very good reception. But a lot of guys were saying to me, "Wow, love your product. Where do we get this from?" And I'm saying, "From uh, England." And they say, "But well, is that New England?" No, 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 not New England. You know, across the pond, you know. Oh, near London. Yeah, near London. <laughs> oh, that was great. But unfortunately, America's a big continent, self-sufficient. And none of these guys wanted to go to that problem of importing a product. Sure. So they said, look, when, when, when you get a distributor over here, we'd love to, uh, we'd love to buy your product. And when did I get a distributor over there? This is 1968. I got my distributor in 1979. Wow, that's a big gap. Holy <laughs> crap. <laughs> that's a big Jeez. gap. <laughs> it wasn't the first. I had six failed attempts. Six times I got a guy and we were trying. Oh, failed every time. What do we do? What do we do? How can we change this? Luckily, luckily, running. Running became something big in America. Out mm. on the streets, people yeah. wanted to keep fit, and so many people wanted to keep fit. All of a sudden, they'd come along, well, why don't we do races, a 5K, a 10K, a half marathon, and a marathon? So this was growing immensely. And with it, apart from Nike growing with it, Runner's World. Runner's World came out with a magazine. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. And that magazine... When, when it first came out in the very late 60s, it was a single A4 sheet of paper, which told people where some, where some events were. By 90, well, the mid-70s, it was a full-color, 60-page, wonderful magazine, and everybody bought it. So, you know, we, we'd probably by that time, maybe 20, maybe 30 million Americans out there every day running and, and buying this magazine. Mm -hmm. So this was the difference. And uh, Bob Anderson, Bob Anderson, who published magazine, I went to, to see his office in Los Altos at one point. He uh, he was so influential, he thought he could tell everybody which was the best shoe to buy. It wasn't Reebok, of course, that he told everybody it was the best shoe to buy. <laughs> <laughs> it was Nike. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, sorry, no surprises. It was Nike, right? Yeah, right. Okay. Right. So uh, then we have Phil Knight, nice company, growing nicely. All of a sudden, maybe 20 million people wanted to buy his shoe. Ah, hmm. but he's bringing those in from Japan and the Far East. Could he get the product? No. That was that was a big disappointment. He had, he had the demand. The, the retailers wanted the product. The, the athletes wanted the product. All the runners wanted the product. And no, big failure. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and so next year, uh, Bob Anderson, he changed that. So he, changed, he, he put another number one. But again, it was the same problem. They, they were, everybody's bringing the product in from the Far East. Couldn't meet the demand. Okay. Bob Anderson gave up, hold us through his hand and said, look, let's change this. So he changed it to star ratings. So instead of him saying, you're the number one shoe, he said, look, five-star ratings. We'll give ratings to the shoes. So you'd be five-star with the top, four, three, two, one. And of course... <laughs> That meant we could uh, we could get three or four five star rated shoes. At that point, I thought we're in this business. 
we we can get one of those five stars. Mm-hmm. Obviously, obviously, we're sort of uh, flying high, probably probably fighting above our weight, but thought, oh, we'll we'll go for this, and uh, we did. Uh, in 1979, we got the five star ratings. But earlier that year, I was back at uh, back in Chicago in the January, the uh, the, sh- the shoe edition of uh, Runners World didn't come out until August. Right. Uh, but by that time, I mean this running game was getting so big that everybody wanted to be in. Came out, came to my stand, and wanted twenty thousand mm. pounds. Mm-hmm. Biggest order we'd ever sort of had. I was okay, okay. And I met Paul Feynman. Paul Feynman was running a small company called Boston Camping. And he'd been running it with his brother and his brother-in-law for about 10 years. And the, the progression, the, the being able to scale that was like difficult. You know, he grew probably he grew probably five percent a year and he was getting tired. <laughs> I could tell he was getting mm-hmm. tired. And he came onto the stand and said, Joe, well, you know, we'd love to get into uh running shoes. I said, right, okay, Paul. And I could talk to Paul. Yeah, we, we had a good chance. Mm-hmm. He said, if you can get five stars, I'll be your distributor. I went, look, Paul, come and have a look at the latest shoe. Yeah, so I took yeah. my latest really shoe, the Aztec. This is going to be five stars. I said, this is going to be five stars. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Sure. Here, yeah. here, here's, here's something, though, that I, I want the audience to, like, catch on to. Because we're talking 79 now, right? 1979. So, mm-hmm. so let's 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 go back to when this started. There's right. a lot of years in between that. And the right. one one of the lessons I want people to take away from this is what you've talked about so far is business takes time, right? There's you know, this instant gratification stuff that we live in today and all these things. When you started your company, you, you didn't even have the choice of instant gratification, right? <laughs> so, so, yeah. so I want people to look at where we've gotten to to this point in this story and go, wow, that's a lot of years. But now look at where it is today, right? So it's right. all about the war. Yes, a big fight. Yes, it's a big fight. You got to keep going, and uh, yeah, for sure. Of of the people that we talk to, it it's that you know you've got to keep going. Just just keep going. Just keep going. But you know, in order to do that, you have to have fun. Yeah, yeah, for sure. If you're not not enjoying it, if it's not fun, uh, you can't stick it. That's it. So you've got to have fun. So um, we, we have fun. People say, how did you manage to go to America, do this and that? We're not, did you not get fatigued? No, I was having fun. I was learning an awful lot. I met a yeah. people. You know, likewise thinking, great. So going to America, and that was only one of the places I was going to, but America was the was the dream market. That was, mm-hmm. that was the big one. Had to, had to get in there. Yeah, so I say it was 1979. And we were we're looking at uh, making a five star shoe, and so when it came round to the shoe edition, and I'm talking to Paul, and I said to Paul, "Look, Paul, can you go down to the kiosk? Because the this was late July, and the, the Runners World Shoe Edition should be out now, and if you go down to the kiosk, you, we may find how we did in the underratings." Mm-hmm. An hour later, he came back. He said, "Joe." Aztec, you got five stars. Wow. That was it. We, we'd broken the ceiling. You know, something had happened. We'd, we'd got through. He said, but so not only did Aztec get five stars, Inca, because we'd produced the gold range. We, we, you know, we were in athletics. The gold range, and Inca was a spike track shoe. He said, that also got five stars. And then we also had a, a racing shoe, a road racing shoe. Um, what was my road racing shoe called? Road star? No. Which one? <laughs> I've got, oh, sorry, I'm, I'm I've got my memory here. You're multitasking. I got I got Inca, Inca and Aztec and uh, Midas. Yeah, something Midas. Midas, okay, Midas was our racing shoe. We got three five star shoes. That was it. Instead yeah. for ten years I'd been pushing, pushing, pushing to get in. Mm-hmm. 
That supplied Frank Shorter. Do you remember Frank Shorter? He mm. was one of the best distance athletes. You see, I go back that far. <laughs> Frank Shorter was one of the best distance uh, runners in uh, in America. And uh, Bill Rogers. Bill Rogers, another one. Supplied mm. Bill Rogers. You know, they they actually bought our shoes. Right. They, they were happy to import and, and, and running them. So uh, we had some top hats. And in 19, I don't know, nine, late 1960s, Ron Hill, who was probably one of our best marathon runners ever in the UK, he won the Boston Marathon in record time. So he broke the, the record for Boston Marathon. So we, we had credentials. Mm-hmm. But even though we had those credentials, pushing was difficult. And that's why I had these six attempts Good guys, one in LA, uh, one in uh, one in New England. I was a guy in Thousand Oaks, I, 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 and they, but they they couldn't make it. They just couldn't get through that barrier. But now, wow, seventy nine, everybody's reading magazine. This magazine, Reebok, yeah, wow, Reebok, five stars. So now we were being drawn into the market instead of having mm-hmm. to push. Was, was was that kind of your first lift, you would say, right there? I mean, that wasn't a lift. That was an explosion. We took off. It was like a rocket. <laughs> Suddenly, they lit the blue paper, and off we went. I mean, that was it. Oh, but, wow. What a problem that gave us. We had a small factory. Mm-hmm. The factory could probably do 2,000 pairs a week. Ah, we needed... 20,000 pairs. We needed so many more. So that, that was the, the problem. How do you do that? Well, we had to, if I, do you, do you know the Barter Shoe Company? Have you heard of Barter? No. Uh-uh. And you know, if, if you, we were going back now 30 years, you would know Barter as the biggest shoe chain in, in the world. And in every, <laughs> on every street, every street in every town in, uh, in America, they were, they were big there. They, the unfortunate thing is, that's all they were. They made shoes, shoes for the millions. Nothing mm. aspirational. They were just good price, good whatever. And believe it or not, they're still by volume. They're still the biggest shoe company in the world by volume. Hmm. Which, but they're big in India and Latin America. They're really big in both those uh, uh, territories. However, they were they were big in the UK in those days, and I had a friend there. And it's good to have friends in the business. You know, the one thing I learned about uh, the whole thing is that if you need something, go see a friend because they can put you in the right direction or they can actually help you. And so the guy at Barter, he said, look, if you want help in making the product, we'll we'll make some product for you. So that was, that was my first sort of step outside the factory in making shoes. Uh, it wasn't a good it wasn't a good experience in the end, but we got volume. Um, and and eventually, because one of the problems is Kmart. When Kmart came on the stand, they said, we love your shoes, want 20,000 pairs, but we need a better price. Mm, yeah. And uh, I said, okay, because I, I knew that would happen. I knew they'd want us to compete with the Far East. So uh, I had I had... I'd, Seen some people, the agents for the Far East company, had spent some time with them, and they were they were producing samples. So I thought, yeah, we can we can do that. Meanwhile, Barter had offered to do a quick a quick run. Right, so we're at that. So, and I'm thinking twenty thousand birds uh, came out. I'm not sure. That's that's a big that's a big leap, and you know, they they'll they'll rate us by how good we do in so many square footage of uh, selling space that they give us. Yeah, right. And if they don't, if we don't come up to the, uh, the standard they want, um, that will be our first and last order. So uh, Paul Feynman, who I had met down there in, uh, in Chicago, and I'd, I'd called him and he told me what we got. I thought, well, he's got good experience and he's hungry. He needs mm-hmm. something different. He just needs something different. Um, so, okay, I'll go with Paul Feynman. Rather than the 20,000, let's take the step at a time instead of trying to do this massive leap. <laughs> and, and so, so that was it. With uh, We started off with Paul. Uh, we did get the first lot of product from Bata. Unfortunately, it didn't work that well. Mm. By that time, at that time, 
there were new materials coming in. One was called EVA, um, which, which is an expanded, not rubber, an expanded plastic. And Barter was so big, they had their own rubber factory. They produced their own rubber, and they thought they could produce this plastic. They must have been five minutes short on, on some of the production, five minutes short of curing it properly. Because what happened if it's uncured? When you put weight on it, it just collapses. It needs needs to be cured properly. Mm. So we, we had a lot of these shoes that were just collapsing. Uh, but all that Paul did, all that Paul did, yeah, whilst we were distraught at this, Paul just exchanged them. He just gave them a new pair of shoes and took them. So and it's a probably a good 5% were, were failing. However, we, we soon got into the uh, into the Korean production. We soon got that. But the problem is, whilst Barter would give us a credit line, when you go to the Far East, you don't get a credit line. Right. It's, all done, it's all done on letters of credit, so you have, you have to have a bank which is going to support you. And we, well, banks were very cautious in those days. So, And we didn't have seeding money. We didn't have angels. We, there was nothing around. But this guy, uh, he, well, he was a friend of a friend that Paul knew in America, and he's, he's a Brit called Stephen Rubin. And Stephen Rubin, he ran Liverpool Shoe Company, and they're, what, what they were doing, part of their product, they actually sourced product from the Far East. So that was their, their role, sourcing product from the Far East. So we came to a deal um, that he would give us, not a credit line, he would, he would give us credit. He would allow, he would supply the product and give us a 30, 60-day credit line. He got mm. a bit when we got to $20 million, but uh, apart from that, he was earning <laughs> he was earning nice money off the bottom of that. And we started, we, we started growing up. Here we go. This is it. We're, we're, we're in the company. Was that like your, your on-your-way moment then at that point, do you think? Well, there were so many on-the-way moments. I mean, just, <laughs> just, just, just getting five stars. Just getting five stars was on our way. Yeah, it, yeah. It, it was then the dawn. Well, I had to realize that if we got five stars, the demand, because it was obvious from what uh, Phil Knight had been through before that you can't just turn a tap and get the product. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, been, yeah. I've been working on how do we fit the product in. But uh, yeah, I mean, that that was going big. And so we, we were doing very nicely. And then, uh, and I, I picked this up later. It wasn't on to media, but Arthur Martinez, he was our tech rep. And he was down in L.A. And his wife, Frankie, she was going to these classes, coming back with her friends. Oh, we're full of it. Oh, this is great. And Arnold's saying, hey, Frankie, Frankie, what are you doing? Oh, we, we, we're doing this uh, these exercises to music. Really? Yeah. What's that called? Well, she said, uh, aerobics. <laughs> aerobics? <laughs> and Arnold is quitting her and thinking. And he said, can I come down to your next lesson? Yeah, why not? Come on. Well, I mean, I know all these girls just dancing up and down on that. Why not? <laughs> so, so he went. He, he went down there. He went down there, and uh, there's the instructor wearing a pair of sneakers. We think they were New Balance, but mm. wearing, she's wearing a pair of sneakers. Half the class were wearing the same sneakers, all white. Rest of the class, they didn't have any footwear, just barefoot. A light bulb moment for Arnold. Why don't Rebo make an aerobic shoe specifically for women, women's sizes, on a woman's last, out of glove leather? Just mm. to fit like a glove, being so comfortable. Wow, fantastic. He's in LA. Paul Freeman's in Boston. What's that? No, that's it. <laughs> Paul Freeman. So he gets the overnight, flies up, see Paul Fireman, and oh, goes in. Tell him, Paul, fantastic. This is a, an absolute wonderful opportunity. We've got to do this. And Paul's saying, Arnold, slow down. Slow down. <laughs> we're a running company, and we're doing very nicely. What do we want to get into making dancing shoes for girls? Why, why should we do that? Arnold couldn't persuade him. He said, you know, Arnold, keep a close eye on it. And if it uh, if it seems to be working good, we'll 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 do something. 
Arnhold didn't like that. So we ran around to the back door to look at our product manager. And uh, Steve Liggett was in charge of production. He did a better job on Steve. <laughs> he persuaded Steve to, to make him 200 pairs of this shoe. With nice white shoe, Reebok, and just that little English flag on the side, the Union Jack. And mm-hmm. uh, he got his shoes, took them down to L.A., and that was it. He gave them to all the instructors, all the right guys. And when Jane Fonda actually went out and bought a pair, mm-hmm. she used those on her videos. Wow, that was it. We couldn't stop it. That was a tsunami. <laughs> and it just exploded. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we went from a we were a nine million dollar company then, healthy but not big. Right. In in four years time, we'd grown to nine hundred million. In four years time, and of course that gave us another problem. How do you how do you take your product, which we knew had grown a lot from when we were producing it in the, in our in the UK? How do you go from nine million to nine hundred million? How do you get the product? And that was the amazing thing. We had this guy in the UK who was now, he, he was happy with uh, giving us a good credit line because it was paying him mm-hmm. nicely. Sure. Um, and, uh, but, you know, how do you get the factories to turn on that extra? You know, we were mm-hmm. taking millions of product a month. Right. And, you know, four or five million pairs a month we were mm-hmm. building. And uh, we were lucky because Nike, Nike hit a wall. At that time, in the uh, it'd be in the eighties, eighty uh, two, eighty three, they just hit a wall. All of a sudden, they were over manufactured too much, too much uh, inventory, and they had to pull out. Uh, you know, people say you make your own luck, but you need <laughs> a bit of luck like that. That that was luck for us because we just moved in as they moved out. We moved in and kept that going, and so. Uh, yeah, say within those four four years, you can almost say we went from zero to a billion in four years, and wow, we didn't, we didn't have to sell anything. It, you know, the salesmen were just sort of saying, "Well, we can't, <laughs> we can't deliver." But then again, that was so great because had we not been able to deliver, we would have lost that and lost the aerobic market. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden, from being a small running company, we became a woman's company. We were aerobics and we were and women women did it for us. And the men were looking at these products and thinking, why can't we have those? But we didn't make them in men's sizes. And that again was a very good marketing strategy, just making them for women. Uh, eventually we sort of got into women in the early days. As I said, they were made of glove leather. And and the I I only found them found out they were made in glove leather when somebody phoned me and said, Joe, we're having a problem with production. Can you help us? Why? What's the problem? Uh, well, these aerobic shoes. These what? Aerobic shoes. You, you, ever, you ever, No, I've never heard of aerobics. What are you doing? <laughs> I'm, still, I'm I'm running global. I, I, I decided long ago, when we got to America, we needed an American in charge. We needed CEO Paul. No good me trying to do anything. Paul, you know, you do it. Get on with it. So uh, nobody told me about aerobics in the in those very early days. Right, right. Yeah. So I said, well, what's the problem? Well, we're, we're making this in uh, glove leather. Glove leather? And and I'm saying, we never, but I, I'm thinking, no, we did make shoes out of glove leather. But what we had done, we had, a, we had a marathon racing shoe, very light, very comfortable. But we used the leather suede side, so we used it inside out. Mm-hmm. We, didn't, we didn't have to work on the leather to get the adhesive to go into it. They were, they were using the, the skin side, as it were, the flesh side. And in order to get the, the adhesive there, they had to take the surface off. And, of course, you think glove leather is one millimeter thick. One millimeter. Yeah. And once you start working on it and taking that surface off, you're ending up with 0.75 of a millimeter, three quarters of a millimeter. Wow. And there's no strength left there. That's pretty thin. <laughs> That's pretty thin. And it can tear it like paper. I bet. Yeah. So I, I learned a lesson here. And that was that uh, marketing is has got more ideas and, and is better than manufacturing. 
Mm. Because once I said you need, you need to get a better leather, well, there wasn't a better leather if they wanted it soft. So what did they do? They lined it with nylon. Okay, that gave it the strength. And I said, uh, okay, we put nylon. I said, just a minute. You, you use leather because it breathes, because it allows the foot to keep cool. Now you put nylon in there, you know, you wouldn't put your head in a plastic bag. Why yeah. put your head in one? Good point. We never thought of that. So what did they do? Well, they punched holes on the vamp, on the front. Uh, yeah, they were breathe. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. Lesson, okay, we can always get our way through this. We don't need it. It took a little while, but we got the tanneries to make the leather thicker. So this wasn't glove leather, it was more like garment leather, but it was mm -hmm. thicker and stronger. So that, that got us through that part. And of course, once once we got to a, a billion revenue, we were we were big. In fact, we went through that system of uh, you know, we were saying, you know, when we go to retailers, we think we're a small company just growing. Mm. Why, don't we change, why don't we change our attitude and think we're a big company? We're a billion. We're a big company. Let's tell people we're big. Yeah, and yeah. yeah, and that not only changed, uh, we'll say, the retailers and the stores' attitude towards us, it changed the internal attitude about of people who work with Reebok. And, you know, we, we, we then grew the idea we're a winning company. Mm. And the culture, the culture could grow with that. That winning yeah. company, and you all belong, and they all everybody said we don't work for Reebok, we are Reebok, right? So that and that culture really drove us to very nearly four billion. Yeah, I'm curious, Joe. I'm I'm really yeah. really curious. Just like right before you hit that, because I think there's a chance to catch a really good lesson here. Just before you hit that billion dollar num number. How many employees did you have? Well, I've lost count, but uh, I be, because a lot of this was now being run, the manufacturing was being run from America because we, we wanted sure. to satisfy the market. I didn't want to get in between. But I, I believe it must have been between five and 10,000. Sure. And it, it just, we, we just right. need that. Uh, and, no. and again, we were not manufacturers. We were using manufacturers. So. Mm -hmm. Depends who you add. I remember going way, 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 way back to J.D.W. Foster's. And we had a big article in the, in the local paper. And then that local paper, it said how Foster's were international and quite big, a nice big company. And how many employees did it have? And that was one of the questions. And um, my father, who was sort of answering these questions, said, oh, we've got 20. <laughs> and I read, this, I read this article in the paper, and I'm saying, <laughs> Dad, where did he get 20 from? Well, there's the postman, there's the dustman. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he included everybody. So when it, when it comes to numbers, wherever they are and whatever they were doing. Yeah, yeah. that's funny. <laughs> you, you, that's you, funny. You would rebook a lot of people. And like I say, it's, it's the inclusion, the inclusion of those people. Mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, People say, well, how did you manage to grow and you know, sort of scale that company? I said, well, I didn't. A team did. A lot of people did that. Mm -hmm. And uh, it takes a lot of people. You know, we'd, uh, I, I stepped back at the end of 1989 because by that time, you know, I knew a company when, when there were just two of us. And now we've got thousands. We've got so many lawyers, so many accountants, mm -hmm. and so many people in between handling the product so it gets to a side where it becomes corporate and right. i guess i guess I, I i was probably not made out to be a corporate man <laughs> i know, i would have never guessed joe <laughs> <laughs> there you go so, <laughs> so for me it was time i was 55 and it was time then to just step back and you know, come on, guys, you get on. We, we, you know, we, we're really winning this race and we're doing very well. So mm -hmm. it's time to step back. And uh, but what you what you do, what I did find out anyway, that although you can step back from a company, you can't become disassociated. Mm -hmm. So I've remained, I've remained there all the time because the one thing about a founder is that uh, you know you can replace any other role in the company, but you can't replace a founder. Right. Very true. Yeah. yeah. But we we had tragedy along this road. 
We had just got those five stars, just gone into America, when unfortunately my brother died. Mm. And he, you know, he would have been the man to uh, carry on with with the production, mm. and probably the Far East and help with that. And that's one of the reasons that we we decided to take it to America. I let America run that because they were mm-hmm. we'd, we'd keep the gap. Short. We didn't want things to go around to the UK and all lots of things, lots of, and then pass it on to America. You know, it didn't work. That's why yeah. we had production, the production team. We sent our design designer out there and uh, one or two other people. Look, you go and set up a little office, an international office, in in Boston, and sure. uh, I'll look after the rest of the world and start uh, to start to build that. So certain uh, certain decisions were taken. Uh, because it made sense. It made sense, you know, you don't want your finger. Probably I should have had my finger on the pulse a bit more when they started making shoes out of glove leather. But, but, uh, but you know, you can't be everywhere doing everything. And uh, you, you've got to give the responsibility to some people. And that was good. They came to me and asked, what can we do? And uh, so we, we worked it through and that, that was fine. And... Uh, and, and the company just just developed and grew, and we got to the point where we overtook Adidas, we overtook Nike, and we became number one. So, and that that was the time when I stepped back. We become number one. Where where can we go now? Right. And that's amazing in in that world, right? Of because yes. that's a really competitive space. So so to like to sit on that top right that's a pretty good feeling and it, it's it's almost like it came at the perfect time for you though right I where, think yes. you know where you were you know kind of ready to put the sword down a little bit right and uh yeah. came yeah. came at a perfect time for you which is that's yeah. awesome awesome to get that <laughs> I, you know, I, I knew it was time to to uh, not walk away but right. uh, let's step back let's step mm-hmm. back part of the everyday structure and the everyday working at the company i think right. you have to you have to be able to understand and take that when you're in something as big as grown like reebok but uh, there's a different uh although we we kept the culture we needed to keep that culture to keep it personal to keep it uh mm-hmm. culture. but of course you needed so many people because now you know i i used to think that when we got a big company we wouldn't have all these legal problems that we're seeing to go through all the time. Some as soon as for this, this is all yeah, you got legal. I thought, no, when you're big, you don't need it. No, the bigger you get, the bigger the legal problems. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Uh, yeah, oh, <laughs> I'm sure of that. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> and so you need a special way of uh, special way of looking at it. But you know, as, as I was saying earlier, the uh, the important thing is to have fun. Mm-hmm. And uh, they used to ask the question, Joe, what three most important things when you, you know, in running the company? I said, well, the first thing is you've got to have fun. You really have to. That's got to be. Second thing is you must have more fun. The third, <laughs> it's got to be an absolute hoot. It's got to be. So <laughs> it's great advice. Really good advice. No, no doubt about that. I'm, uh, you know, and for the audience, you know, that didn't maybe catch a lot of, of those lessons through there. Think about it. Fun, more fun, and absolutely a hoot. <laughs> <laughs> those are the three things that will take you to take you to success right there. And, right. uh, you know, it, it's funny because a lot of people think it's all the wrong things that are going to take them to success. And, yeah. If you don't, I'm not saying you got to absolutely love what you do. You don't have to love it, but you definitely got to have fun and you got to wake up every day jazzed about doing what you're doing. If you're going to hit any kind of pinnacle, there's no doubt about that. So, so thank you for that. Like, you know, honest feedback of fun, more fun and (laughs) a hoot. (laughs) that's awesome well what's joe up to today what is uh, what are you what are you up to today and well i'm sure you pretty well know the uh what what has happened because i stepped back in the end of 1989 Mm -hmm. maybe early 1990 
we still did have, we still didn't have computers. We didn't have smartphones. Sure. But I decided I'd take a a nice rest on the on a nice island and take in the sun, and of course lie back and enjoy it. And then of course we did get computers, and we did get smartphones, and we did get Google, and we did get Wikipedia, and mm. they they did try and tell me how Reebok started, and we had a photograph of Joe Foster, founder of Reebok. Well, he may have been called Joe Foster. It certainly wasn't me. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm thinking, what's all this about? And that that inspired me to say, oh, okay, I'll write. A lot of people said, Joe, you want to write your story? Ah, yeah, don't know. But this inspired me. This this made me, yeah, I'd better write the story. I'd better get this story straight so that people don't start inventing what happened. Yeah, right. Which is, which is what they did, and there were so many inventions. In fact, one of them was the fact that uh, the the grandsons of the founder of J.J. Frosters took over the company and changed its name. Well, it was far from that. <laughs> you know, we, we had we had an incredible uh, journey. Yeah, we started off as Mercury Sports Footwear, and eighteen months later, our accountant said, "Joe, you're doing great. You better register your name." What? Register the name? Why, why, why do we need that? Oh, he obviously knew I needed a lesson in here. <laughs> if you don't register your name and somebody said, yeah, that, that company Mercury, they're doing very well, we'll make some Mercury shoes. And if they start making Mercury shoes and then you get the question, who owns Mercury? Well, that's easy to answer. So we used a patent agent and the patent agent said, uh, well, we'll give it a try. And uh, he came back with the answer, Lotus and Delta, British Shoe Corporation, they have the name. They're not using it, but they've got it registered. Well, I said, can't we just claim it? Yes, yeah, you can claim it. Okay. He said, but they, they've offered it you for a £1,000. Well, £1,000 today, it's like small change. That's nothing. That's almost in your back pocket in mm -hmm. those days. We just set our whole company up with machinery and everything for two hundred and fifty pounds. Machinery, and they wanted. Wow. So I said, "Sorry, can't. Uh, we, we can't pay a thousand pounds. So if we take him to court, what would that cost?" And he says, "A thousand pounds." So we stuck. We can we can we can either buy it, nor can we take him to court for it. Uh, so he said, "Well." You've got to change your name. This was in May, very nice May. It was nice, nice and warm, remember that. And he had his window open. Mm. And uh, he pointed, who did he point to? Kodak. Oh, that was it. He pointed to this sign, Kodak. Ah, and I the said, film, film company. Company, yeah. I said, yeah. what was Kodak? He said, they invented the name. That was, they made it up. So mm -hmm. the best name that you can bring me is a made-up name. He said, but don't bring me one name. Bring me ten. And I said, ten names? You know, we've got to be in love with this. This is our this is our company. He said, I need ten names because you put them through the register and you'll be lucky if you get one of those ten. Mm. So I went back and we sit around the table when we started, you know, trying to make a name. I mean, you must have done this. You said, what can oh, we yeah. yeah. <laughs> what should we call this? And you get some very, very funny sort of names coming out. And well, yeah, but we came out with, uh, uh, I think, what was Cougar? Yeah, Cougar's a nice name. We had we went down the animal and bird sort of way and got right. a lot of names there. Now, I'm sitting next to my dictionary. I have a dictionary. I have to take you back to 1943. <laughs> if I can take you back there. Yeah. 1943, in the middle of World War II. And uh, I'm eight years old. Just eight, which is 80 years ago. I was eight years old. And uh, as with COVID, nobody could go anywhere. We couldn't travel, no lights on, everything set. But we did have local events. And we had a local running event in the summer. And I was entered into a 60-yard race. And I won it. Hmm. Won the race. I had one big advantage. I had Foster's spike shoes on. Ah, there you go. <laughs> yeah. 
None of the other runners had anywhere near a spike shoe, but I have spike shoes. I saw one. Well, whether that was cheating or not, I don't know. But I won the race. And I, I went. I went up, collect my prize. Right, where are we? Oh, what did I get? A dictionary. <laughs> they gave me a dictionary, and it was an American dictionary. Why a Webster's? Would you know a Webster's American dictionary? I didn't know it was American at that particular time. But I'm saying, well, the Where's the football? You know, what can I do with the dictionary? I suppose I could kick the dictionary around a bit, but I wanted <laughs> football. Ah. Anyway, I had that dictionary. And I let's fast forward now to 1960, and I still have my dictionary here, my American dictionary. Uh-huh. And for whatever reason, I like the letter R. So I open my dictionary, thumb through to R. And very soon I come across a word, R-W-B-O-K, Reebok, what's that? And I'm reading down on this, and it's a small South African gazelle. We're a running company. Gazelle. There you go. That's it. Wow. I put that at the top of the list. And, uh, you know, this is an American dictionary. Had this been an English dictionary, the spelling would have been R-H-E-B-O-C-K. Nothing like as romantic as R-W-B-O-K. Right. <laughs> so that's that's maybe why I was destined to come to America, just to check up on that dictionary. Anyway, I put this at the top of it, and I went to the uh, uh, paint agent again and said, look, here's the 10 names. But the one at the top, Reebok, that's the one we want because we really need to be in love with it. But you know, he's a lawyer. And he said, okay, Joe, we'll do our best. Took him two weeks. He came back. And he said, look, you've got your wish. Because the only one that was clear of all these names, the only one was Reebok. There were just two two little sort of problems he had. One was with a shirt manufacturing company called Railbrook. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other one was a woman's underwear company. Um I've forgotten their name now. Rebo. Rebo. My, my <laughs> memories <laughs> on me over there. It was Rebo. And he said, I doubt that Rebo will uh, will bother with the, the... We're talking phonetics now. You know, and, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. He said, I doubt they will. And Railbrook, he said, I'm also their patent agent. So we're not going to complain. <laughs> so you can have uh, Rebo. So that's, that's how we changed our name. We got Reebok. In itself, wow. there's a story there. And, uh, oh, that's things. amazing. Yeah. It's, it, it's amazing how, what's a, more amazing is you go all the way back to winning that book in 1943. <laughs> I mean, if you want mm. to talk about the wonderful coincidences that happened along that team (laughs) (laughs) or maybe maybe they weren't coincidences they were just supposed to happen so um you never tell never 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 tell but but uh, i'm curious up there on your shelf because usually when somebody has something on their shelf it means something to them the the shoe what's the significance of that one particular shoe that's on your shelf up there you know formula one uh-huh. Uh you know Lewis Hamilton? I don't know him. No. Lewis Hamilton was a seven-time world champion. Oh. I should probably know that. <laughs> yeah, not for, not for the last 3 years. But uh-huh. uh last 3 years Red Bull have been champion. He he was a Mercedes driver and he he mm-hmm. won the world championship 3 uh, seven years seven times and one of those years Reebok had sponsored Lewis. Okay. Okay. So he signed one of the high tops. Oh, very that's cool. It. That's right. Yeah. And if you can see the tennis ball, the rather large tennis ball. Uh-huh. That's a friend of ours who is, uh, you, you you may know him, uh, J.T. Fox. I yes, you know I, I know that name, yeah. yeah. Well, we were together with him in London, and he went to play tennis with uh, John McEnroe, I think a bit of a charity event, and he brought the ball back, signed by John McEnroe. Say, it's Joe. Mm. We've got that. <laughs> oh man! And apart from that, we've got some uh, some good new books up there. Uh, we have "Survive and Thrive," which is a new book which is coming out. Mm-hmm. 
probably in about a month's time it'll be, it'll be out in, into the uh, st- into the sh- the bookshops and uh, different places. And sure. we have, of course, my book, which is uh, um, Shoemaker. And uh, I, I mean, we know that Shoe Dog was uh, Phil Knight's book, but see, he did, he never made shoes, so I can have Shoemaker. <laughs> There you go. <laughs> and that one's released already, right? Yeah, we shoemakers been out there a couple of years. Okay, okay. And uh, and it's growing, and we we you can get one through Amazon at the moment in uh, mm. in America. Sure. So yeah, that's been out a while, and while we're we're moving and talking because the book, I I just really wrote it to put the to put the story straight. We'll say, mm-hmm. sure. And then one or two universities in the UK picked it up and read it and said, "Joe, there's a business book here. You know, there are so many experiences that people should read about." Yeah, right. For sure. Well, you know the, the trials we had. You know because we were young when we started and we left the JW Foster company to start our own company. And it was like, what can go wrong? Yeah, what can go wrong? You know. It, Everything. <laughs> then we found out. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're four years into into our into the company, and we got a letter from Adidas because our silhouette was two stripes and a T-bar, mm-hmm. and the Adidas lawyers said that was infringing the three stripes. Hmm. We were still small, and we're looking at this letter. It took about fifteen minutes to dawn on us. Just a minute. I did us know we're here. That's good. They they think we're a bit of a challenge. They know we're here. Oh, wait, pin that on the wall. So what <laughs> do we do about it? We change our silhouette. We'd have to change our name. Okay, we accept that. So this is another challenge. We changed our silhouette to what we see today, which is the, the arrow shape. Mm-hmm. And, and and that is a better it's a better silhouette. So Whilst we thought you know, initially it's a problem, you end up, okay, you need to change it, and it becomes something different, and mm. it's better. So the name, right. the name was better. Reebok was better than Mercury. It was much easier to say and ask a lot of questions. And our our new, uh, well, the silhouette we have now, that changed. Mm. So it, it's just amazing the, the number of things. We also have the... the uh, the window on the on the side of the shoe where the name is in the window, mm-hmm. and that came about because uh, I, I used to drive a Saab. I don't know if you remember mm-hmm. Saab. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, and Saab was sponsoring. Uh, who was sponsoring? Sebco. I say Sebastian Co. I don't know if you know Sebco. Sebco is head of uh, uh, the, the uh, International Athletics, the IAAF. He's, mm. he's now. And head of IWF, he was world record holder for fifteen hundred meters and eight hundred meters for quite a long time. And uh, the the Manchester Saab distributor said, "Joe, come along. I'd, I'd like to meet somebody." So I went along, and oh, I, I know who he is. <laughs> Seb, <laughs> I know who he is. Can you make? And the guy said, "Can you make a shoe for him?" I said, "Look, Seb, as you know, is sponsored by Nike." We can't make a Reebok shoe for him because it'll just, uh, he can't mm-hmm. wear it. So the guy said, well, can you, can you make a Saab shoe? Well, yeah, we can do. He went into his office and brought out some labels of Sawanto apparel. And he said, uh, can you put this on? Oh, I said, okay, well, I'll think about it. And driving back to the factory in the office, I thought well, the only way we can use that is to cut out a piece of leather and saw it behind which we did. Mm-hmm. The, shoe, the shoe looked great. <laughs> it was a Reebok shaved with a Saab on it. The shoe looked great. And uh, and when I got back, I, I just phoned up our label manufacturer and said, look, I want I want some Reebok labels with the Union Jack. And uh, the the guy was there in, in no time at all. And that's how we got the, the, the window because it mm-hmm. came again by... Really, an accident. We wouldn't have had that. We'd, we'd have had what everybody else did, and that we'd gold stamp it on. So uh, that was, a, and it was the same with these Jack. We we had the, uh, the Starcrest, which was our logo, mm-hmm. and we had the Starcrest on the side. And I'm sitting down with Paul Fireman in very early days, 
And Paul's saying to me, you know, that looks like the Union Jack. Joe said, yeah, yeah, it does, it does look like the Union Jack. So why can we use the Union Jack instead of that? And I'm saying, Paul, we can use the Union Jack, but that will give me lots of problems in the UK <laughs> because if they're made in Korea with a Union Jack on it, you know, they'll kill me. <laughs> he said, well, <laughs> said, well, what do you think? I said, look, we'll we'll get over the problem in the UK, but let's use it. So we started mm -hmm. to use the Union Jack. And, uh, and I said, why do you want to use the Union Jack? And Paul said, because everybody in America knows the Union Jack, which was a lesson for me. I didn't realize that the Union Jack was so well known in America. Mm -hmm. And, you know, with no point of sale, because it was that small, but we had the Union Jack on each, each of the shoes and the box. The lid of the box was a Union Jack. Mm -hmm. And when we went to the stores, all the stores did, they got the boxes and just put them in and put built up a pyramid and put a shoe on each of that. And mm -hmm. that was the best point of sale we ever had. Mm. It was incredible. So many of the retailers just built some of those boxes. So, you know, we're full of different things, different stories, different adventures. And you know, yeah. how could that not be fun? I mean, that's a, you know, I, I look at it and... I look at it as fun, but also, God, what a heck of a ride, right? Mm. I mean, you know, it had its ups and downs and left and right, just like any other business, right? You know, so I I understand it. I have 14 companies of my own, and uh, I understand the challenges, but your challenges were much different in that time because you didn't have, you know all this speedy technology to to do things and that's why companies nowadays move so fast is, you know because they have all this stuff and and you think of i it always makes me wonder like would have that been better or worse it's <laughs> <laughs> a tough one to ask a tough one to come up with um it, it, <laughs> was what it was at the time yeah right. and there's no question for me it was pencil and paper mm -hmm. and that or, or jumping on a on a plane and flying yeah. something meeting yeah, yeah. something right. And, right, right and that way that way it was great you know we, we still meet people but uh i think we've had nearly 200 uh, podcasts wow over, over the last two years no, oh julie's julie's bringing that down to 150 <laughs> I, I always used to exaggerate <laughs> Oh, that's too funny. Too funny. <laughs> well, well, hey, Joe, I, I kind of like to uh, round things out a little bit by um, by asking uh, what I feel is an important question, and, and that is, if you could have had anyone here, uh, any point in history, any point in time, dead or alive, doesn't matter, who would have you loved to have here today with us? to have this conversation with us and why them? Well, there would be many people I'd love to sit down with, but there's only one that uh, really should be here. And that's my brother. Mm. Mm. Yeah. He, yeah. He would have been my choice yeah. because he didn't, he didn't see, he didn't see this, uh, this growth company become number one. He didn't see that. Right. But he, he was just there when we, when we just actually made it into marriage. So yes, it, it would have been great to be able to have him sit here. Yeah. And just part of this conversation, yeah. Because I'm, sure, I'm sure he has as many stories of my failings <laughs> as any successes. Yeah, that's for sure. Well, yeah. that's part of it, no doubt, right? It's just uh, no there's a there's there's failure around every corner, and it's all how we react to the failure. You know, that's for sure. And it's just a lesson. It's yes. just a lesson, that's for sure. But anyway, so. I look forward to people getting out there buying your book. Um, you said your new the new book comes out. When does it come out? New, new book, book Survive and Thrive comes out in about four weeks. Okay, Survive and Thrive. Make sure you go pick it up. It comes out in about yeah. four weeks. And uh, I can tell you there's some fantastic stories in there. Some of I those bet. stories are incredible. You know, yeah. they didn't get it big enough to be a company that you could talk about ever, but some of the stories. <laughs> I'm sure. Right. <laughs> In fact, we've done so well with it. We're already working on book two. 
Oh wow! The stories. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah, one guy. One guy was living in a a, a Russian refugee camp. He was Armenian. Mm. He was a, a child, and his father wrote to the White House every day. Hmm. Can I come? Can I come? Eventually, <clears throat> the White House responded, and he got thirty days. And from that thirty days, they managed to earn a living. And we were able to grow. And then the son, he is now wealthy. He has grown into a, a tech company. And and the stories are so they are. They're, they're really good. They're really something that uh you know you need to see and you need to read. It's uh, it's fascinating. Yeah, that is amazing. Yeah. I mean I I came from a you know a farm in Montana, grew up there, and you know not wealthy by any means and you know then spent 23 years in the military on top of that right and, right. and did some started some companies in the middle of all that because my parents were entrepreneurial you know and stuff and and okay. uh you know then from there i just took off on my own path and and i love to hear stories of you know it's not always about hearing about the success, right? I don't, uh, it's, you know, it's just the struggles. You know, it's, maybe you should be. Maybe you should be in book two. Who can I? <laughs> I would be honored to be in book two <laughs> for sure. Incredible, no, no doubt about that for sure. But anyway, well, hey, Joe, I got to tell you, this has been a great conversation. And I always tell people we all have the same 168 hours in a week. Thanks for stopping by here for an hour and giving me an hour of your time today. Um, for me, it's a blessing to have sat down with you and got to hear your story that comes from you, not by someone else. <laughs> it's been an absolute pleasure, Jason, and it's been it's been a riot. We've laughed our way through it, and you know that's nice. Yeah, and, you know, we've enjoyed. Sure. It. It's been enjoyable. So All thank right. you very much for that invitation. Yeah, cheers, my friend. Yes. Thanks for listening to War Room Moments with your host, Jason Miller. Please leave your feedback and visit strategicadvisorboard.com to get the latest and greatest business advisement on the planet. Follow us on social media for updates, and we'll see you on the next episode.